and welcome to the full cast and crew weird Christmas special. I'm going to be joined today by my frequent guest, Richard Brown. Regular listeners of the pod know that I generally subscribe to the notion that weird is good. So what I mean by that is this is not a Christmas special where Rick and I are going to talk about things that are so bad that they're good because I think that's a bit lazy. There's enough of that in the world. Rather, the challenge that I set for Rick and myself this week was what Christmas stuff, songs, TV episodes, movies are weird in a specific way that appeals to us and to the audience for this podcast. More succinctly, as Hunter S. Thompson famously wrote, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Well, today we're bringing you the first annual full cast and crew weird Christmas spectacular. It's going to be a breezy, informative chimney drop down memory lane. Now, Christmas, any holiday time, really can be difficult for many of us, either because we're alone or because we can feel alone in the crowd of our families and friends sometimes or working through the holidays when everyone else, it seems, is celebrating. Well, whatever the reason, here at the Full Casting Crew Podcast, we're here for you with some laughs, hopefully some retro pop culture vibes, some great clips, and we hope it will send you searching for the source materials. And as I said, it's not going to be bad for bad sake. Not at all. Well, maybe when Richard has to defend his TV episode, we'll see, but I won't spoil that here. No, weird is good. And weird Christmas choices we have made are weird in that in general, they all approach their themes, whatever they may be, from a slightly off kilter perspective that they might possess some unusual qualities, which I think render the finished product well worth your time. And I would like to welcome my frequent guest and a fitting end to the year in podcasting, Richard Brown. Richard, welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be here and uh, <clears throat> happy holidays. Such an introduction. We'll have to see uh, uh, whether I fulfilled the, whether I got the assignment or not as far as, uh, <laughs> but you know, weird can be a lot of different things. It's true. Now, Rick, I'm going to leave it up to you. Where would you like to start? Would you like to start with songs, TV shows, or movies? I'm kind of inclined to start with the movies. Wow. Okay. I didn't see that coming. I love yeah. it. Okay. This is going to be tough. I mean, now I know what your selections are. You know what my selections are. I'm forced now to sort of think about micromanaging the listening experience because we have two very different choices. My choice is probably a bit more easily explained, I think, to the listeners. And for that reason, I think we should probably start with yours because at first people may have the reaction I had with your choice, which we can talk about. <laughs> but uh, in a great in a great process, I was completely proven so wrong and to have contempt prior to investigation, which I always claim to try and avoid. So uh, why don't you tell us what your pick for your weird Christmas movie was? I decided to go with an American Christmas Carol. This is actually a TV movie, 1979, stars uh, Henry Winkler, who people uh, knew mostly in 1979 as the Fonz on Happy Days. Some great uh, Hollywood actors, David Wayne, Dorian Harewood, uh, and then a bunch of TV people that you never heard of before or again. <laughs> and do you recall what my... Uh initial thoughts were when you suggested this well you said that uh, for some reason because i think because it was a tv movie and because sort of maybe looking at the uh maybe something looking at the at some of some of the production materials uh 
that maybe the makeup was going to be indicative of the quality of the show. <laughs> uh, we can talk more about the makeup at some point. And also, uh, maybe you're a little prejudiced against Henry Winkler at first. Oh, no, no, no. Let me let me be very, very clear that I have always been a huge Henry Winkler fan. Of course, he attended Dramatic Arts College in my hometown of New Haven, Connecticut. So, I mean, he's always got a soft spot in my heart for that. I think, yes, I will admit I have a general quality bias against TV movies. Perhaps that's a flaw or perhaps that's a valuable self-protective mechanism. I'm not sure which. <laughs> Probably a little more the latter. So that was the first thing. I will admit that the makeup at first threw me uh, because... And it's not bad per se, but to see Hen to see an obviously young Henry Winkler, because let's remember, this is exactly the time when he was, I don't know, is it fair to say the biggest star in television as the Fonz on Happy Days? Yeah, 1979. I mean, the show had been on the air for probably five years at that point, and uh, the guy and the character were an icon. And for any, I mean... <laughs> I was trying to think what I just saw. Oh, I saw the Ryan Reynolds, Will Ferrell uh, version of A Christmas Carol uh, with my family a couple weeks back, which is an interesting production and has many worthwhile things, even though I think ultimately doesn't quite come together. But they make reference in that movie, which is yet another retelling of A Christmas Carol, that they, they there's an offhand line that Ryan Reynolds has something like, oh, you mean another sort of version of A Christmas Carol that nobody asked for. And they sort of joke about that as a thing. And it is a thing, right? I mean, there's so many of these. If you wanted to jump in and find A Christmas Carol to watch with your friends or your family or even by yourself over the holidays, you have an inundation of choices. So when you suggested this at first, I thought, yes, like what? Then B, I thought Henry Winkler. I did think that, I will admit, because I saw the makeup first. And then you sort of defended it a bit in a text thread and I thought, okay, well, let me, let me investigate this. And I do have to say, uh, it is a superlative version of A Christmas Carol. Yeah, and significantly very different from a traditional Christmas Carol, um, not only in terms of setting, but uh, this screenwriter, uh, who's a veteran TV guy for decades, he took basically the chassis of Dickens' Christmas Carol, updated it to the 19, well, not updated, but took it into the Depression-era 1930s. And other than a few kind of references to the original text, this is all com a completely rewritten Christmas Carol inspiration. Even the, even the characters' names are changed. True. And I found it impressively, uh, winningly dark which was another surprise, right? Like That's another thing that I like about it. I've seen a ton of uh, Christmas Carol, both stage productions and a lot of the movies that have come out. To me, uh, one of the things that I uh, like about the original Dickens um, Scrooge character is that I think that he is supposed to be a little bit absurd that i think that hmm. he's so mean and angry that you're supposed to actually laugh at him a little bit right. that's always the kind of the take that i have whenever i go to see a christmas carol and we do see a, a production in the city where i live every holiday year uh and i always go I always go away going was scrooge funny enough 
uh, <laughs> to my liking. Yeah, that's not what you're going to get here. Surprisingly, this take is very is very dark. Not only in the in the performance, but in the characterization and the whole atmosphere of this mill town that yeah. takes place. Which in this case, instead of being in London, we're set here in Concord, New Hampshire, in 1933. I think. I would say it's impressively dark. I'm kind of finding, I'm like, how did this even get on television in 1979? How did a production starring the most warm-hearted, beloved television star of his era manage to squeak through all of the layers of television executives who probably were like, can he be more Fonz-like? Can he have a catchphrase? Can he wear a leather jacket or something? I mean, it's so impressively itself and and really committed to the real toll that the actions of the Scrooge character here take, even though, as you said, he's not he's not named Scrooge. Um, it's 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 weird in the right way. You hit it exactly. You hit the the ask exactly on the head. Um, the performances are uniformly excellent, and the saccharine nature of the story is completely squeezed out. And yeah. what is left is this very dry, bare, uh, real consequential sort of realism. Almost. It's, like, it's almost like a very realistic Christmas carol. And not only in what the Scrooge character's actions sort of cause to happen to the other characters, but in the roots of his own hubris and the, the reason why he's the way he is. I'm not sure I ever saw that quite so much in other versions do they do that in in like classic christmas carols i don't know well in classic christmas carol the scrooge character uh he has a family he has a relationship with kind of an angry father and uh and a, and a sister and uh and he is he is placed in at the at least at the beginning of the story in the christmas past story uh he's sent to a boarding school and, and there are a variety of things that are happening in in scrooge's life that sort of add up to his misanthropy mm. uh, in this uh the character here is uh slade instead of scrooge and i believe slade is sort of a, a reference again to kind of a, a new hampshire quarry town where this takes place and he his background the character's background of this is that he's just an orphan he doesn't have mm-hmm. a sister he doesn't have um uh, a uh, a good-hearted nephew right. that uh keeps inviting him to christmas dinner and that sort of thing uh, other than his business partner and a girlfriend story that takes place in the middle uh, he's really all alone and he's so he's adopted by sort of the local you know burger the, the the businessman of the town who makes furniture and, and sort of what becomes an antiquated fashion and his rapscallion nature at the orphanage prompts this gentleman to see something in him and take him home. And, and there's a really great almost business story. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of, it's about how businesses get innovated out of existence and the question of whether you adapt and pivot to survive or stay true to some ethic or moral character is all wrapped up in this. Here's a little bit of a, I found a, of course, retro uh, trailer on the ABC Sunday Night Movie where this aired, I guess. I wanted to, I've never played this, so I really don't know what we're going to see here, but. Watch Fahey Flynn at 6 and 10.
This is your ABC Sunday Night Movie theme. ABC. ABC. Sunday. <laughs> On Wow. Pacing was a little slower back then. <laughs> the ABC Sunday Night Movie. We got it. A very special retelling of Charles Dickens' Christmas classic, Claptrap, A Christmas Carol. Henry Winkler is the old Scrooge embittered by life. What is it you want? The past wants only to be remembered. Until life gave him a second chance. A chance for the future. In a performance destined to become a classic, Henry Winkler in An American Christmas Carol. A very merry Christmas. It's, it's, it's funny, the trailer doesn't at all convey any of the, the real darkness that you're going to be exposed to if you watch. Yeah, they're definitely not selling that. <laughs> they're not selling the, it. Uh, in, the, in the, the marketing uh, department at ABC. You were talking about uh, the importance of uh, business mm-hmm. uh, as part of the the story here. The other thing that's really significant to my mind is that in the original Dickens text, you get the idea that um, Scrooge he's he's a landlord. We know that, but where the money, where he and his partner sort of made money, is deliberately kept a little bit vague. Mm-hmm. In here, we have a whole we have a, a the Slade instead of Scrooge character. He has a whole scheme going on, which is <laughs> yeah. to... Uh, it's very FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. Yes. No, he, he, is, he is predatory. On these, He's a predatory um, lender. He invented yeah. predatory lending. <laughs> right. He's a predatory guy in the way that he sort of suckers people e- into either borrowing money or putting, uh, putting uh, buying uh, stuff on time and, and credit. Uh, with the intention that they're not going to be able to afford to pay back uh, what they've borrowed, and then he can collect the merchandise and resell it. Mm-hmm. That's it, really that's to me. It's it's a much uh, more well defined sort of capitalist scheme than we right. get out of the original uh, Dickens story. And and what's incredible about the way the film unfolds is it it works right like of course people sign up for this against their own best interests and at what cost success and all of that comes out impressively um the makeup does make henry winkler look like keith richards which is an interesting fun aside as you watch this if people (laughs) go for it but more seriously one of the other things i really liked about it the three guides that show up you know to show him christmas past present and future what I like is they are remarkably cold-hearted towards Slade's words, right? Like, it's part of the trope of the show and and the Christmas Carol in general that in being exposed to visions of these things, the character is changed in real time in a, in a manner that we can see. And you're supposed to feel for his change a bit. But this show doesn't really even allow you or the guides to feel for Slade. They, they sort of impressively, I think, embrace the idea that actions speak louder than words, which yeah. also resonated with me in today's, today's climate as well. Because even when he's begging them, when he's saying, no, I will change, I can change, they don't really buy it. They don't give him any kind of quarter until he can actually demonstrate the change, which I thought was impressive. Um, 
I will note, however, that the uh, Matt Reeves character, who I think is the Dorian Haywood character in the beginning, who Slade shows up with his assistant, who's in this telling sort of the he's the version of the father of Tiny Tim, I guess. Yeah. Um, and they repossess all of the, the the black family's furniture and goods. But at the end of the film, when Slade has had this turnaround, he's he not only somehow manages in, a, in on Christmas morning to obtain armloads of appropriate Christmas gifts, which he then distributes. I'm not sure where those came from. Is that part of the Christmas magic? I don't know. Um, but, you know, he still makes Matt Reeves, the Dorian Haywood character, carry in his own shit back to his house. Like, he doesn't get off and help him carry the stuff in. So, realism? Maybe. I don't know. Well, you know, he has to have a word with the wife. Oh, okay. Um, I guess that's the... Okay. <laughs> yeah, because she's sort of still not buying it, even after yeah. he shows up with giving, yeah. giving her gifts and returning all their possessions. Yeah. Yeah. There's a scene where he has to sort of he has to really uh, do uh, keep selling his his uh, his new his new personality, his new his new disposition of the wife. And then he ends up right. kissing her on the hand. And yeah. Now, did you also notice that there's a connection to Becky Connor from The Roseanne Show? No. Linda Gorenson uh-huh. plays the wife of the Slade assistant character. Okay. And she is Lessie Gorenson's mother. Lessie Gorenson, of course, playing Becky Connor from Roseanne. I did not know that. Well, now you know. So I did not know that. Christmas, I, 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 this is really good. I actually recommend people watch this. If they're, gonna, if they're in the mood for a Christmas carol, watch this one. It's, it's definitely weird in just the right way. Rick completely answered the bell. I myself had an embarrassing sort of complete like, oh, my God, what is what this is? This guy's not getting the theme here. This isn't going to be weird. Well, it turns out it's pretty fucking weird in an impressive way. I wanted to play a little of the you sent me a great Henry Winkler clip here talking about this. I was doing uh, Happy Days and I was approached by a Len Hill, who was the executive at that time. Len Hill asked me to be Scrooge. And at the same time, uh, Gary Smith from Smith Hemian, uh, one of the most successful variety uh, producer directors uh, in television, was part of the production team for this American Christmas Carol. I ran away from the project as fast as I possibly could. It scared me to death. I thought, who do you think you are trying to be Scrooge when I grew up watching Alistair Sims? It scared me. I can't even begin to tell you how I thought that there was no way I would be able to bring this character to life. Gary Smith came to my house, my very first house that I ever bought in my whole life, which was on Rec Law in Studio City, and walked around the living room and tried to convince me that I would be okay. And then I thought to myself, okay, so you can make up excuses and not take the challenge and be an idiot, or you can go down in flames or you can soar like an eagle. This is what you're trained to do. Why don't you just shut up and do it? <laughs> and I'm telling you, with 
every fiber in my being. Uh, it, it was the most difficult yes. And, and as an actor, when you as soon as I say yes to a part, I think, well, I can't act anymore. I don't have any idea how to do this. I don't know why I said yes. So this was the most difficult yes, maybe in my entire career. That's incredible. I love that soundbite for so many reasons. I think it speaks to the life of an actor. I think it speaks to the uh, insecurity that too infrequently gets addressed by actors in a public sphere. But of course, Henry Winkler isn't afraid to mention that. And I think his, it speaks to why, as I texted you, you know, it occurs to me that Henry Winkler has been a part of American pop culture for probably 50 or 60 years. And that's not easy to do. And he's beloved. And he has a new generation of people who appreciate him. He's beloved on Twitter. I mean, if you can accomplish that, you're made of pretty sturdy stuff. Uh, a genuinely nice person, someone who is universally beloved within the industry. And I think that soundbite is one of the best ones I've ever heard about actors approaching material and the stuff that goes into their thought process. Yeah. And it comes together here because he's really good in this. He's so good. In this TV movie. He's and, damn uh, good. You are right. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on. Um, so my choice going in a totally different direction was the 1974 Canadian film Black Christmas. Here's a little bit of the trailer. We're starting on a lovely sorority house. <laughs> it's Christmas. There's lights. There's trees. There's Cure Delay from 2001. There's murders. There's Margot Kidder. So anyway, this trailer doesn't really give you any information like many horror trailers of the time well it's it's all it's all uh sound effects it's just no sound effects and, 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 and the cast but uh there's no in a world yeah they didn't do that <laughs> yeah it's not really made for the podcasting era you know some trailers you can you can just play the audio and everyone understands what the hell's happening this is not one of those but when i tell you it's got Keir delay it's got margot kidder it's got john saxon uh it's got an impressive cast it is malevolent in a brilliantly funny way, I thought. So, A, it's an early slasher film. And in fact, it, it gives us the shot that De Palma uses at the beginning of Blowout when the movie opens and you think we're in sort of a sorority sex comedy and there's a heavy breathing lurker who walks in front of the windows and in each window there's a scene going on of some kind of prurient sorority business and then it sort of cuts and pulls back and you realize that we're in a soundstage and that the John Travolta sound engineer character is is screening a film that he's doing the sound for well that whole shot that legendary fake uh tracking shot or steady cam shot as it was is pretty much lifted directly from this film, which is which opens with a very similar 
piece of menace. And I guess they remade this movie in 2006. I haven't seen that. Um, There's two remakes. There's a 2006 and a 2019. Oh, a 2009. Yeah, 2019. So yeah, I, I understand why, because the IP is pretty good. But for me, not having seen those other two, um, there's something so 1974 about this. There's something so impressively, again, dark and funny. It's not particularly prurient. It's not a sex kind of slasher setup per se. But it's a very well-written and well-executed piece of thriller filmmaking in a surprising... It's surprisingly good is what I experienced when I rewatched it. And it's got great performances and a pretty good setup. And what people consider sort of a trick ending, although I didn't really get that per se, I'll just say that I think it's it's a really interesting piece of horror filmmaking in a way that you don't typically get. And you certainly didn't probably get in 1974. I was surprised with this too. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that, uh, I don't like these kinds of movies, mm -hmm. uh, because I find them sort of inherently misogynistic. I just don't like this kind of horror mm -hmm. violence. I prefer my horror to be more of the sort of paranormal mm -hmm. type of thing. So it, Normally, I don't like these kinds of movies. Uh, I don't think this is a particularly good sort of Christmas-themed movie. Here, the the Christmas is just sort of the wrapping paper, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, to provide sort of a um, uh, a cynicism about uh, the messages of Christmas being about peace and love, and then we mix in all this sort of violence and... Uh, um, and terror on the other hand even though i don't think this is a good christmas movie nor is it the kind of movie that i typically like the execution of it is really impressive mm -hmm. i mean the way the thing is put together i was i was really surprised and i can't say that uh i didn't have a lot of takeaways from it yeah i i, I was it's it's funny i listened to the uh commentary track from the director um whose name I should have at my... Bob Clark. Bob Clark, who's a Canadian director, I guess. Um, right, who made not only Black Christmas in 1974, <laughs> also made A Christmas Story in 1984. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Like the famous one. Yeah, did same he, guy. Did he direct... The, isn't there a new one out now that's like a... picks up where that one left off? With, I don't know. Oh. Well, you know, I, I listen to a lot of DVD commentary tracks, perhaps alone among humanity who does so <laughs> and they generally fall into only two groups endlessly fascinating and revealing or completely boring and unrevealing and to my shock bob clark's commentary track on the dvd of black christmas contains just no information whatsoever of the sort a real interesting commentary track should contain and he sounds very uh, unlike the person you would imagine in your mind made this film in 1974. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not a John Carpenter type guy in conversation. Uh, so it's even more kind of bizarre and impressive that the tone of the film, which I think has to do perhaps with uh, some of that Canadian-ness, you know, maybe that sense of humor, because I thought it has a very impressive, malevolent glee. The amount of swearing around young children in scenes is to be commended in general. <laughs> um, you know, there's like a Christmas scene in the sorority where there's a visiting guy playing Santa. And it, it's just, 
it's stuff that you wouldn't expect to see in a slasher movie and the filmmaking is above average like all this in in, a, in essentially a one set film for the most part which is the sorority house he gets a yeah, lot of mileage and a location too it's it's not a it's not a uh it's not a sound stage it's Correct. it's it's filmed inside and outside of some old victorian house in in toronto yeah and it's it's suitably creepy um and the creepy aspect you know, you'd think with sort of that raw, that wry arch tone that we're talking about, the the comedy tone, that maybe mm-hmm. the, the 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 thriller elements, the slasher elements would be lacking, but they're genuinely creepy. In fact, some of the creepiest I think I've ever encountered in a film of this sort. Which I'm with you. I am not a fan in general. The only films like this that I tend to respond to are the superlative kind of legacy filmmaker versions of things like this. So if it's Carrie, um, you know, if it's The Shining, I mean, those are not slasher movies. Um, Halloween, you know, even Halloween, this is a better film than Halloween. Hmm. I think in terms of filmmaking, in terms of filmmaking, you know, in terms of performances, uh, he has real actors and the characters are impressively kind of multi-dimensional and confusing at times like mm-hmm. margot kidder i think gives a really great <laughs> performance as this budding alcoholic sorority sister whose issues come out the lower her bottle gets <laughs> <laughs> and Kier delay kind of playing this this bizarre modern pianist who might be the killer like it, it shifts the suspicion now to your point about typical misogyny of these types of films, you know, in a way, I thought in this film, it did a nice job of portraying the women as generally much smarter than all of the men and smarter much, than the cops, smarter than the cops, you know, but also like the the relationship between Keir DeLay and the woman who what's her name? She's she's fantastic. She's she's of note too. Olivia Hussey, uh, Olivia Hussey. You know, that relationship is such an interesting portrayal in a movie like this, I think. You know, she's the woman who doesn't want to give it up in order to pursue the relationship with him, give up her career ambitions and things that she wants to do. Yeah. He's pressing her, you know, because he's kind of falling apart and not getting what he wants out of his graduate education, I guess, as a pianist. He does this hilarious modernistic performance, which I guess is supposed to be. I don't know if that's like his PhD performance or whatever, but he's basically too iconoclastic a performer for the school and it all falls apart and he's he's violent. And I thought the movie did a pretty interesting job of casting a pretty uh, askance eye at most of the men in the film. Cure Delay, the cop, like there's that cop who just laughs all the time. Uh, for a moment, I thought, oh, is that guy the killer? Because the, the calls that are made, it's a phone call horror movie, too, by the way, you know, done to great effect in future films. But yeah, phone calls plague this sorority house. Uh, hell, there's a, there's like a heavy abortion storyline for crying out loud for 1974. Yeah, I mean, That's pretty impressive. It's it, it it walks a fine line because on the one hand, you do have these young women who are all sexually liberated. Mm-hmm. Um you know, they're very much young college women of their time in 1974. They're good characters. They're interesting characters. The only problem is they all get murdered. 
They all get violently murdered by you know a uh, by a psychotic stalker who uh, whom uh, we are who is our avatar you know in the way that the women are looked at. But uh, again, that's the bigger discussion about about more of this film genre. Uh, isolating this one movie, um, like I said, there's a lot to be appreciated. Well, actually, when you say that, that that he's the avatar through which we see these women, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think that unlike, I mean, there's a couple shots, certainly the beginning shot where where the POV is the killer looking through the windows. But the murders themselves are not shot from the POV of the killer. They are more. Well, I don't know. What about the 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 Margot Kidder killing with the glass uh, unicorn or whatever? Aren't we seeing the 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 stabbing implement from the killer's eyes well you see in in cuts uh you know you see the action of the killing but i mean i I think of the the who's the who's the girl who gets suffocated in the closet with the she's the first kill she gets she gets suffocated in the closet and then is put up in the attic in a chair yeah um and in that scene you know she enters the room and and it's 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 more of the omniscient pov because we see her coming into the room and then you're told or you're shown, you may be shown a quick shot from behind the the plastic bag in the closet where the killer lurks, but it doesn't have the Halloween-esque POV um, yeah. to me. It, it's more interesting than that. It's got more kind of, and it could be completely accidental, by the way. Like, listening to Bob Clark talk, I'm not sure how much thought went into all of this stuff uh, or if it was just kind of the way he thought of making a movie. And also, let's remember, in 1974, you know, I don't think the tropes of this type of film were so as established as they would be even, you know, post-Halloween, which is, what, 78 or something. So this is kind of setting the bar a little bit in terms of right. how these things do. Another great performance I wanted to shout out, and one of, the, one of the things that I think recommends this film is the fact that Andrea Martin, the great, great comedic actor, is, is cast in a role in this film and is used to great effect. Like that just shows you kind of the quality of the cast, I think. Um, and I do like both the subjective camera of the killer POV and the objective camera, which I think allows it to be different. It's not just one or the other. Um, and there's a lot of interesting camera work. Like it's complicated. There are some complicated shots and the focus is changing. Um, it's just a weird freaking movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, where are you on now? How do you feel about spoilers here? I mean, look, it's uh, I don't know what percentage. I mean, I don't think you need to be concerned about spoiling the film. OK, well, I'll try to be measured in the way that I'm uh, talking about the about about the Billy? way that this film goes. Oh. But one thing that I think is really uh, cool is you're talking about the about the point of view. And the fact of the matter is this the the psycho killer in this mm-hmm. we have him on the phone uh we know where he is in the house based on the yes. way that the, the uh, shots are set up never see the killer right um very effective to, yeah which i think is highly effective and there is a twist at the end as far as um the way that the killer is identified and this is this goes back to what you originally said about whether this is sort of a a quirky ending or not uh, because it was uh, apparently really debated between Bob Clark and the studio about mm-hmm. what the ending was going to be because he wanted a movie where it's 
not only is it unresolved who the killer is, we never see the killer. We don't get the backstory of right. the killer. There's little nuggets that we get about what is motivating the killer, but a lot of it we have to make up, you know, sort of fill in the blanks. And to me, that's a really great horror experience, a really great, um, more of a psychological, you know, mystery experience than it is, uh, you know, a, a body count. Type yeah, I mean, movie. if they found Billy and dragged him out yeah. of the house and you saw him, it would it would be less somehow. Yeah, and the studio wanted a different ending. There, they had. Of course, they did. The studio, they had the studio had had picked one of the other boyfriend characters that was going to be revealed at the mm -hmm. end as the real killer, and uh, Bob Clark, I guess, uh, stood his ground. Right? Yeah, he stood his ground, and I think the um, the calls are so bonkers. In fact, this is one of the annoying things on the DVD. There's actually a commentary track. Uh, on the DVD, so for the uh -huh. entire you know ninety-eight minute running time or whatever it is, it's Billy doing a commentary track in that kind the of actor who played Billy. Yes, okay. and it's done in the same unhinged kind of style. It's just it's unlistenable. I mean, it's <laughs> I'm glad they did that because it's it's funny to see it as a credit on the on the DVD extra. But when I tried to listen to it, I thought when I would listen to it, I would hear the actor sort of talking about how he came up with, you know, some of the different insane things that he says on the phone or some of the other characters kind of things. But no, it's just an a annoying guy screeching and ranting for the entirety. Yeah. And it's actually, if I understand, it's actually three different three different people. actors right. playing because you know, the character is supposed to be have some kind of split personality where he's playing. Uh, some out his uh, childhood traumas where he's both him, right. he's both Billy and his parents and his sister or whatever and uh, they're they're actually it was cut together using different actors but there was one primary guy. Now again, this ties into a couple things because when we did Halloween recently with Fraser Rice um, in 1978, which is a much more famous, much more kind of uh, critically you know praised film than Black Christmas, but many many things that Carpenter would do in Halloween are done in this film four years earlier. And it also occurs to me that one of my more recent episodes on Zodiac, David Fincher also used three or four different people to portray the brief glimpses yeah. of the body of the, of the killer, whether that mm -hmm. killer was always the Zodiac or not is left sort of undecided in a purposeful way, but he used that to great effect in a similar fashion. Yeah, uh, remember how, I'm trying to remember the name of that great actor who plays the um, the the accused killer in the, in the where they- John David Lynch. John David Lynch. And I remember- John Carroll Lynch, watching sorry. Watching that movie where you're listening to the, <laughs> the killer, yeah. just the killer's voice, and you're trying to figure out whether it's John David Lynch doing that. Yes. The same, is it the same voice? John Carroll Lynch, yes. John Carroll Lynch. Yeah. yeah, and it makes you do that. And that's and it also makes you do that in Zodiac before you even know that's gonna be a thing, which is fascinating. And you do that you do that here because uh they go to extreme lengths to try and uh, uh, point the finger yes. at uh, Cardulia as the as the killer, and so when in the in the scenes where you're act he's actually seen and acting, you're trying to listen for his voice and and try to figure out whether he's the guy or not. Am I supposed to say Cardulia? Is that the I'm is, a that, the, is that the appropriate? Yeah. Okay, I always say Cardulay. I'm a Dahlia. That's all I got to say. Do you know this? Or you just... That's the way I've always said it. Okay. 
but I just never looked it up, so I don't know. I just assumed cure delay. Like if you're an actor, I don't know. If, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody. If I've ever seen the name, it's one of those things where I've only have I only ever seen the name and not heard it pronounced. I'm not sure. Hmm. Let's see if I if I Google cure delay pronunciation. Uh huh. Sounds like cure delia. Cure delia. Cure delia. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying delia. Huh. You must be right. Kier Dahlia. I mean, if I don't know what lady on Google. Google says it. That's how I say. Why would Google know? Okay, I, let me. Let's. Let's. Here's how to pronounce Kier Dahlia. Let's see what this says. Even Frank, they have been on this ship for quite a while. What we are seeing is just a routine, and as Kier Delay put it, they don't really have huh. anything left to say to each other. It also <laughs> appears that in a previous video, I talked about how Kier Delay played the scene. Hmm. I don't know if we're gonna have enough time to solve this today. <laughs> You know what? Forget the rest of the stuff. We're just going to do another hour on the pronunciation. I think if you're an actor, you're going to be Kier Delay. Kier Delay. Kier Delia? That's just A, too complicated to remember. Um, and I think on the screen, I mean, can you remember the first time you saw his name on the screen? Did you just assume it was Delia? Do you remember this at all? I just remember watching 2001 a hundred times when I was a teenager and always seeing that name and thinking it was D-U-L-L, Dull, Dullia. Dullia. Kier Dullia. Interesting. I think he's kind of wacky now. I don't know why I think that. Isn't he sort of, he's still alive, I believe, isn't he? Yeah, 86 or something like that. I think he's kind of a loose cannon. Yeah, he's kind of an unhinged guy. In this movie, he is (laughs) 38 years old. And... Is that true? Olivia Hussey, Olivia Hussey is 22. Wow. They're supposed to be a, this romantic couple, and I'm not sure. Well, he doesn't look like 38, said, does he? he? I mean, to me, he doesn't uh, look 38 years old. He is a very young person. He doesn't look person. like a grad student to me. No. You don't think he looks like a... You know, listen, being a pianist, grad student, Rick, it's a lot of years. It's like medical <laughs> school, right? Maybe he's not really a grad student. I don't know. Like he's he's good. I'm not saying he's not good in this role. I just feel like he's a little uh, unhinged. He's yeah. I just feel like he may be a little old for Olivia. But uh, it was but, another time. But in general, also I want to shout out the amazing uh, Martha Gibson as the as the also drunken house mother in this mm-hmm. sorority house. She's worth your attention. Uh, as is who I can't. I don't know. Is it? Mr. Harrison, who's the guy, the father who comes by, who's sort of the prude? Is that Mr. Harrison? Right. That guy's name, that, that actress's name is James Edmonds. He's, he's amazing, too. He's really good, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like, I, I, it has a bit of an SCTV vibe. I may be saying that because Andrea Martin <laughs> is in it, but there's a certain right. Canadian sensibility in the humor, I guess. Uh, right. It doesn't take well, itself seriously. I think, I think the thing is that... that, that Throughout this movie, because Bob Clark cho- chooses to kind of blend in a lot of deliberate humor into an otherwise pretty dark, mm-hmm. uh, scary movie, yeah. that it's it's hard to tell where you are as an audience about whether you're supposed to be terrified or laughing from from scene to scene. True, that's good. That is good. It's, and you know the the uh, you know I, I read somewhere that this movie was that you know, Black Christmas is supposed to be. Uh, a joke uh, that it's the opposite of white Christmas. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also not just black Christmas. I think it's black comedy in, in the way that the, the, that this, this genre used to be described. I see what you did there. Yes, I agree. All right, let's move on. Do you want to move on to our TV shows? I want to add one note because I just thought it was so brilliant. Okay. On go this, for it. Which is the 
fact that although there is a a composed score that's used mm. in part of this movie, mm -hmm. the majority of the music is actually a sound effect. It's there's a scene where uh, Keir Dahlia, um, <laughs> uh, who is frustrated with his uh, with his piano uh, yeah. performance, uh, picks up a microphone stand and mm -hmm. smashes all the strings of the uh, of the inside of the piano. And from that point forward, they take that sound mm. and it's used as the in, in music we call it a leitmotif. Mm -hmm. It's used as the killer's yes. theme that that sound effect amazing and i can't think of another exa uh, example of of uh, of a movie doing this uh, if you're uh if you if your listeners can think of other other movies where a sound effect is used as the score mm. uh i'd love to know more examples of that yeah that's a great call uh it it it, it lends the genuinely creepy vibe throughout things and and also serves as a little bit of misdirection too right pointing the figure at Keir Delay as the killer. There maybe, you go. maybe he was driven to kill because no one ever pronounced his last name correctly. I understand <laughs> that. So people call me Silo, Silo. You know, the next time someone gets my name right, it would be the first time. But woe is me, mm -hmm. I guess. Well, right. I guess we ought to look out because. Uh, would you like to move uh, on to the TV shows? Yeah. Okay. Um, now we're going to start with yours in a bit of a. Uh, a twist on the last one where you suggested one that I thought was going to be really bad and turned out to be quite brilliant. Well, in this one, you suggested one that I thought was going to be really bad. And to me, it was pretty bad. Um, I guess you'll have to tell me why it isn't. But you chose the season four, episode 11, episode Mel the Magi from Alice. Right. 1979 again. 1979 again. That's correct. Yeah, I'm going to queue up Mel the Magi here because I wanted to play something. But tell me a little bit about why this is your choice first. Well, I'm not sure why you don't like this because <laughs> I think it's I think it's funny. I think the character actors in this show uh, are uh, in the again we get to, we were at season four here, which is some is the prime. Uh, season, one of the prime seasons of the Alice show where we have the actors at their full capacity playing these roles. Mm -hmm. uh, Mel is a total asshole through most of the of, of the episode and he's well played. I think that uh, uh, Polly Holiday is uh, brilliant. I, I especially love the scene where she's on the phone uh, trying to explain to the, the police um trying to give the police her description of Santa Claus. Um, and they uh, say, and then uh, just her her whole sort of like, uh, what do you call it? Like phone. Uh, yeah, it's a one-sided phone call. Yeah, she's brilliant at it. Mm. And in fact, I think all the cast is really funny here. Um, I think that it's, it has, we didn't get quite into this yet, but what I'm looking for here in regard to Christmas material uh, is I want, a Christmas story and a Christmas story needs to have some kind of miracle. Uh, mm. It can be big or small, but in this case, we have a very successful sort of Christmas miracle story where uh, the all of the cast is having a Christmas party at Mel's diner. The electricity goes out. 
a guy shows up uh, dressed as Santa Claus, who we all think is the electrician. And lo and behold, by the end, it turns out that maybe it really was Santa Claus. I don't want to give any <laughs> any more uh, away than that as far as the mm-hmm. ending is concerned. But I like that kind of story. And I like the, the you know, it's 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 family based uh, humor and drama. But I, I frankly, I think it works really well. Uh, and uh, I think it's charming, and I, I really like the actors in this, and, and I think it's a really good Christmas story too. As far as uh, retelling the story of the the gift of the Magi, where uh, we think that Mel uh, is being a, a Scrooge or a Grinch in regard to the the uh, uh, in regard to Christmas, but it turns out that all of the all the characters have sold something so they can buy something for somebody else. And then Mel goes out and and collects all the stuff that got sold so that uh, everybody can have a, a happy Christmas. And so uh, we get de- we get a delivery of both Santa Claus and of Mel uh, doing a selfless act. Um, I and again, uh, what else? Uh, I, I'll have some other comments. But let me. I'm just, sure you let will. Me hear okay. what you have to say about it. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm laughing because. You know, there are so, of course, in this podcast, you know, this is our sweet spot these years, 78, 79, 80, 81, like so many great television series of the time, so many great Christmas episodes of so many great television series. And when I dumped, when I jumped into this and, and started watching a few Alice's to refresh myself, a Christmas miracle was born unto me, Rick, because I was given the gift of understanding that in that context of all these other shows of its era, Alice sucks. And I was shocked to realize this. Um, (laughs) It is so lowest common denominator. It is like what your grandmother would watch on Thursday night at eight o'clock before falling asleep in her recliner. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so broad. It is so hamily acted, poorly written and contrived. And I guess I liked that as a kid when we all watched Alice. For me, the trouble starts right at the beginning. I'm going to play you. What is going on with this singing? Used to be sad. Used to be shy. Funniest thing, the saddest part is I never knew why. Ooh, keeping myself for nothing was my favorite sport. What is happening? Can you can you defend the Linda Lavin singing of the theme song to Alice <laughs> as appropriately pitched and not over emoted? Like, what is that singing? What is that? Please explain. You know, this is the fourth season. They I think that they redid the uh, they redid the uh, the theme song every year, and so she was changing it up. <laughs> you don't find that sort of over the top. Not at all. It's the kind of stuff <laughs> I listen all. to every day. So. That's the kind of stuff you listen to. Okay, what other... Uh, I mean, okay, that's where it started. I, I, I couldn't remember, and maybe to your point, um, was the theme not performed that way in seasons one through three? I think they they changed the... the th- they re-record the theme several times. Okay. I mean, Linda Lavin, I think, is widely regarded as a talented 
Broadway performer as well as a television actor, correct? Mm-hmm. A yes. singer of note in her own mm-hmm. time. Um, mm-hmm. I was shocked to hear this version of the theme song. And that's when I started to get a sinking feeling that I thought, wait a minute. Is Alice not the sharply written, incisive commentary and critique of, um, you know, single parents and working class folks that I remembered it to be? So, yeah, then as the episode unfolded, I wasn't sure where it really started to lose me. Was it during Flo's sexual tryst with two itinerant truck drivers who happened to be stranded for the evening? I'm not sure where that fits into your Christmas miracle, but yeah, that was kind of awkward. Well, she's just being Flo. (laughs) And I forgot about Vera. I forgot about that character. I forgot about that whole thing that, you know, Vera is this kook. Woman child. Yeah, like... Uh, which the actor who plays Vera, who you will probably no doubt have instant recall over, uh, Beth Howland. Beth Howland, yeah. She's great. I mean, she's an incredible comedic actor. Mm-hmm. Um, also a Broadway vet. Is she? Okay. But yeah, I couldn't get what it was in service of. Um, it just, again, I was looking at things like Christmas episodes of Hill Street Blues and the Bob Newhart show, Barney Miller, Mash, you know, so I guess for me, I just saw so many other great examples of great Christmas episode writing. This just struck me as broader than a, you know, 18 wheelers wheelbase or some sort of analogy that I can't think of right now. So, yeah, it didn't didn't, didn't really get it for me. Yeah, I can't fix you. All I know is... there's what a like new girl in town and I'm really like, okay. I just, <laughs> what I like about, by the way, composer, David Shire, David Shire. Uh, great, great composer. Mentioned him many and, times on the pod and uh, lyrics by the, uh, um, uh, Marilyn Allen Bergman. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a great theme yeah. performed perhaps at four as opposed to 57. Let me just tell you briefly what Alice is all about. Okay. This all takes place at this at this roadside diner in Phoenix in mm-hmm. the 70s. Mm-hmm. And at this time, this is this is when Arizona was still kind of still the the, the Wild American West front, the, the American yeah. frontier. And all these people, weirdos and wackos collect there. None of these people are from there. Right. OK, so yep. uh, Alice is from New Jersey. Mel is from New York. Vera's from Matt uh, Boston. Mm-hmm. Even even Flo, who's sort of the southern character, she's from Texas or somewhere. The truckers are just coming through town. Right. Uh, the great uh, who's the guy who plays uh, uh, Marvin Kaplan, who plays Henry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's the the uh, you know the Jewy nebbish from somewhere, probably New York, because he's definitely that's not an Arizona accent. Right. And. Uh, Everybody here is from someplace else. Mm. And in sort of classic sitcom scenario fashion, the workplace becomes the family, the the de facto family. And nobody really has anywhere to go at Christmas and time. And so they all make plans together uh, to uh, share their holiday in the diner mm-hmm. and they are the and, and they become the surrogate family for each other and it's through the circumstances of their 
their patched together family from people who are all from different places that we get this really uh, fun and funny Christmas story. I liked it a lot. Uh, and uh, well, what part know, of it is just, what part yeah. of it would you say fits the bill here in that it's weird? That's my question. Like to me, it's very broad. It doesn't have any particularly countercultural vibes or it's not necessarily coming from any particularly interesting slanted perspective. Where's the weird aspect in this episode for you? Um, well, again, I'm, I think that the whole uh, I, I think that the, it's the it's the Santa Claus part to me, which is uh, it, which is funny. Um, is it weird? Um, maybe it's not quite weird enough. Like uh, like I said, we might have some some uh, I was uh, my mission in this was really to try to find a Christmas story in a place where a good Christmas story in a place where you wouldn't expect it. Uh, that's what I that was my thought in regard to uh, the movie that I chose and the song that I chose mm -hmm. that I wanted to suggest to people something that they would be surprised to find was good. Um, I think but, they I think that they would be surprised to find it's good. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll we'll let the we'll let the I think you'll probably find more people agree with you than with me, by the way, because this is one of those things. Alice is one of those things that if you ask people our age, I think everyone goes, oh, yeah, it's great. Like it's amazing. Alice, definitely. Right. My, it's one of those things on the podcast, which I've had many opportunities to do where you revisit it and you kind of go, Oh wow. Compared to some other things of its time. It's not quite, it's not a KRP for example, right? It's not, which we did on the pod together. Yes. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a sitcom that exists on another level of execution and conception and writing and performance. And Comparatively, I think Alice sort of feels a bit slapsticky, and um, and it's also just again like like KRP, um, it's poorly shot, it's poorly <laughs> it's poorly made, it's cheaply rendered for a show that was in its fourth season and presumably a hit. Um, so that may speak to sort of the cheapness of the network at the time. Not sure, but you know, to each his own, and we will let people explore the hidden charms of Mel the Magi from season four of Alice, Rick Brown's pick. I loved it. I'm glad you loved it. Now my pick, I'm gonna start with the theme song. Now this, my friend, is a theme song. Hello. The Lorenzo music composed. So 60s, Bob Newhart show theme. Dig these changes, man. Love what's about to happen here in this song. This part. Just that mood and tone shift over these shots of Bob commuting in a gray Chicago landscape, heading to his apartment building, which is an important part of the Bob Newhart show, which we'll talk about. And the wonderful Suzanne Plachette. That's a great theme. It is a great theme. For me, my episode choice is season one, episode 14 of the Bob Newhart show from 1972. It's an episode called His Busiest Season. And my appreciation for this starts again from a place of 
I think it's a weird construct for a show to begin with, <clears throat> probably like many Dave Davis things that would come. Um, I believe he's involved in Taxi, too, uh, with Jim Brooks, whose laugh I think you can hear on set during this episode <laughs> in a few places. His signature honk is notable if you if you know what to listen for. Uh, so the the this to me as a kid always spoke to me for some reason because it was something about the city living and the the unlikely pairing of sort of someone who looks like Bob Newhart kind of living what to me seemed to be a very cool cosmopolitan existence in a far off place like Chicago and living in an apartment building was exotic to me mm -hmm. and uh, not having kids was exotic to me. Mm -hmm. The relationship between Bob Newhart and Suzanne Plachette is so such a great example of on-screen chemistry, comedic mm -hmm. chemistry and personal warmth chemistry. Um, and, uh, and also, he's an affable guy, but as far as him with her, like, <laughs> like she's really beautiful. Rick, right? are yeah. you familiar with Pete Davidson? Yes. Okay. I mean, women like to laugh. Women like smart, <laughs> funny guys. They don't really care about what they what they're packaged like. Hmm, okay. um, I think that it, I, I think it makes perfect sense. Certainly in the era, you, you would you would imagine uh, a Bob Newhart type guy with a Suzanne Plachette. I mean, she's not like a knockout in the TV sense. She's mm -hmm. interesting and urbane, um, and it's the humor that's where they meet. That's that's the. That's the bridge that is built between the two of them. It's a knowing, sly humor, which is very much in evidence here uh, in this episode. And, and the thing, of course, with Bob Newhart, you know, is in all of his material, his stand-up material, his legendary recordings of one-sided phone calls, all of his TV phenomenally successful television career, which is kind of ridiculous how many times he did this. It's a guy, it's a show where it's really easy to miss just how smart and well done the seemingly effortless result is. And in this episode, it uses some of those familiar Christmas tropes that you that you talked about. It's Christmas and Bob and uh, Carol are, is it Carol? Is that his wife's name? Is that the Suzanne Plachette character? Is it Carol? Uh, her name is Emily. Oh, Emily, right, Bob and Emily. Yeah. You know, they're just trying to spend a quiet Christmas at home. And of course, Howard, the next door neighbor, divorced airline pilot, keeps intruding. Bob's job and his needy patients sort of keep intruding. And it's, uh, to me, a very, I, I love this episode because it's, uh, it's unexpected to me. And it has some, some really, I think, in a sitcom sense, honest, sort of portrayals of anxiety, holiday anxiety. Uh, I like the way that what ends up happening is that, of course, uh, rather than spending Christmas together as they're looking forward to, all of Bob's patients come over and Bob tries to throw a party, which ends up being the saddest party that anyone ever threw. <laughs> and in, in feeling sad at the party, all of his patients or some of his patients share their anxieties and they share the things that are troubling them about being at the party in such an interesting way. And they're kind of interestingly in touch with their feelings and they signal out like, well, that thing that you said is making me feel slightly nervous. And now I'm feeling like that I'm not having fun at this party. 
And I think it's just sort of impressively addresses neuroses. And I think it has this melancholy sense of holidays that I think a lot of people embrace and feel, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. In a similar way that you're talking about the, the, the characters in, in Alice having nowhere to go for the holidays, and so they're, they're congregating at the diner. In a similar way, all of these characters kind of have nowhere to go, so they congregate at the Hartleys. And it just it has that kind of, uh, it's just got vibe, you know? And it's got really funny lines, and uh, I think it ends on such a great melancholy kind of note, um, and I think it's well written and well performed. So yeah, because what is because what's the Christmas miracle here? That all these sad people uh, uh, come together and they're all having a lousy time at Bob's party, which is right. <laughs> funny. Yes, uh, that Bob Bob and Emily's party is so bad. Uh, but they all think that the reason why they're having a bad time is has something to do with them personally. Correct. And then the reveal. Uh, giving away the ending a little bit the reveal is it's not actually (laughs) it's not actually me who is who is uh, (laughs) incapable of having a bad time it's that this party really sucks yeah i'm gonna play i want to play a little (laughs) bit of this because it's such a really funny scene where bob where where carol i mean when emily sort of is so what what's brilliant is like all of the patients are sharing their neuroses and then uh, emily starts to it's kind of contagious and she starts to feel neurotic and unhappy and is uncertain why. And then Bob sort of uh, articulates the thesis of the episode that you just hinted at. Here's a little bit of that. It's very funny. Honey, we'll, we'll get a plumber. No, not, not about that. I just feel sad and I don't know why. Well, I, I know why I invited everyone over here to have a good time and uh, everyone's getting depressed because this is, Probably the worst party I've ever been to in my life. And, uh, it's all my fault, and I, I like feel very bad about it. No. Hey, you know, I really like you saying this is a bad party, because if you hadn't said it, I'd have thought this was a good party, and I was the only one having a bad time. But now I know the reason I'm having a bad time is because this is a bad party. Oh. <laughs> it makes me feel pretty good. You know, I'm glad you said that too, because I thought this bad party was my fault. But now that I know that it's not, I'm happy. Uh, and I thought that I was having a bad time because I wasn't dressed right. Oh, well, I'm, I don't know quite how to say this because I'm kind of new at it. Well, but honey, you, you just say whatever you feel. Oh, well, I just feel great because we're all having such a rotten time. <laughs> and there's your Christmas miracle, right? Yeah, I, I like. I think saying. it's such an impressively funny way to show the therapeutic process to me. Like, I think that feels very truthful. I also mm-hmm. want to shout out Harvey, what's his name? Harvey, Harvey Goldenberg, who you heard at the end there. The is Woody Allen. Play, like, did this guy make a career out of being Woody Allen-esque? But he's, <laughs> he's really funny in his own way. I have to give him credit. Yeah. He's not just doing a Woody Allen impersonation, although pretty clearly he is. I mean, he's got the glasses, he's got the vest, the white shirt, the corduroy jacket. I mean, the hair, he really looks exactly like Woody Allen. I don't know if that, must, mm. that has to have been a conscious choice, right? I would think so. He was good though. He was good. Um, so, and also I got to shout out the great Marsha Wallace. You know, I just love Marsha Wallace and I, any opportunity to revisit, uh, she's Carol in the show. That's where I was getting that from. She's uh-huh. so funny. I love this whole cast. I love her. Such I love, a good uh, cast. I don't know if you're, I say Peter Bonners. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I like him, but 
to me, the MVP of the Newhart show, although also I could talk for a long time about why Bob Newhart is a uh, uh, a genuine and unique comedian. Yes. Uh, to me, the MVP of the show is Bill Daly as Howard the Neighbor. Mm -hmm. uh, every time he comes on, uh, I just want to know more about him because he is he's both a totally unassuming character yeah. and also a little bit of a of a of a mystery. Yes. Yeah, he's interesting. You know, um, he famously was the uh, sidekick to Larry Hagman on I Dream of Jeannie, Roger Healy, mm -hmm. the Playboy astronaut, sort of playing a different type than he plays here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he's interesting. He's just interesting. He's just a guy who this is the kind of sitcom casting, I think, where if you tried to figure out why it works, I don't you could probably expend a lot of words, but it's just chemistry, you know, and it's timing uh, and the embodiment Delivery. of a character, which yes, lends itself to these, these line deliveries, um, and everything that Newhart is doing, you know, Newhart is kind of the, he's kind of the Kermit, the frog of this <laughs> setup. You know, remember we talked about the Muppet show and sort of Kermit is the one character through whom all the other otherwise unrelated characters end up having to relate. Uh -huh. And in a similar way, Bob is imperfect even though he's the therapist, he's supposed to have all the answers, but he's always failing at, in this episode, he's failing at purchasing Christmas presents for <laughs> Emily. He's, uh -huh. he's, he's failing at throwing a party. He's, he's, he's failing at sizing up Howard's shoe size when Emily suggests getting Howard's shoes for Christmas. Um, but yeah, he's great. He's, he, I, that was something that I was reminded of. It was just, again, Having watched this and all these players, Peter Bonaire's, uh, Marsha Wallace, Bill Daly, Suzanne Plachette, I mean, these, these are performers just on a completely different level uh, that to compare it to your Alice episode to me. I just don't see perf the performances are not an equal thing, which is why I was sort of surprised that you went for Alice, but we're not going to relitigate that. Um, so anyway, it's a great Christmas episode. Uh, it's got great vibe. Check it out. Season one, episode 14. I believe it's on Hulu. If you are a Hulu subscriber, you can watch Bob Newhart show. All right, let's bring it home to our song selections. I'm very excited for this, Rick. Um, would you like to introduce your weird Christmas song selection? Sure. Uh, I decided that I wanted to talk about the song Snowfall. Mm. Um, I don't know how 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 familiar people are with this song from the 60s because a lot of people have recorded it, but it's not exactly, you know, one of the uh, the most familiar songs of, of the sort of classic Christmas era, but I happen to like it a lot. And in particular, um, I am enamored with the version uh, with the the version and arrangement uh, for Doris Day. Okay, let's play. Snowfall. Let's play a little of that. Snowfall 
Wow, what a vocalist Doris Day was. Incredible. And I like and I I like uh, Doris Day just as a singer in general. But in this particular song, like I said, I'm really enamored with the arrangements of the instruments where we have this sort of uh, not only just an atmosphere of this winter scene, but this kind of call and response that's going on with the strings um, being demonstrating the uh, image of snow falling. Mm-hmm. Um we're, I don't know if you if you listened right at the beginning there, there's that acu- that sort of loping acoustic mm-hmm. guitar, mm-hmm. which to me is like, I'm, am I on a horse? Am I in the, you know, am I on a, uh, a sleigh ride somewhere? Like that's the, that's the, the, the feeling that I get out of that music. And there's all kinds of little oral tricks being done with, with descending strings and with flutes and with glockenspiel to, uh, give you a a picture, uh, a, a theater of the mind, if you will, mm. of this of this winter scene that you're in. Um, and while there's not necessarily a story going on in this song, uh, to me, it's holiday time, it's winter time, and the the scene itself is a miracle. Well, it again, kind of like the Newhart episode. Um... It, it captures a bit of the melancholy of yeah. Christmas and snowfall and not in a bad way. You know, it's the emotional underpinning of of connection or lack of connection, distance and the genius of the Claude Thornhill original, who's a noted band leader of the 40s who wrote Snowfall is in the orchestration, as you point out. Let's play a little bit of his original version here, which didn't have lyrics. It's just such a brilliant piece of orchestration. That's from Columbia Records, 1941. It's gorgeous. And it's a song that you'll hear in many iterations if you, like Rick and I, listen to Holiday Traditions on Sirius XM starting on November 1st at the latest for your holiday listening pleasure. The almost atonal kind of thing going on there lends itself to interesting interpretations. I think we joked a little bit because there's a, there's a version by the vocal group, The Four Freshmen, um, that my wife Amanda has to turn off due to its dedication <laughs> to the atonalness that's, uh-huh. that's present in some of these orchestrations. But it is a standout Christmas song in that way that you described. It's it's just different. It's got a it's got vibe. It's got its own thing. It's got a world that can be inhabited by a variety of singers. And there's a lot of great versions. It's a great wormhole to go down. Uh, to listen to jazz versions, particularly really embrace a lot of yeah. the interesting things about the orchestration from the Thornhill version and beyond. And man, listening to Doris Day sing, which I've not really done. Damn. She had an instrument, man. Yeah, she, she, she was great. She had some swing. couple things I'll say about this song, uh, just as sort of, you know, where it fits into the 
uh, holiday traditions uh, canon. I uh, I listen to a lot of Christmas music, and I, there's sort of two categories. We have sacred music, and then what we'd have sort of secular mm-hmm. music, and then with and so and then within the secular family of songs, there's also a subgenre which I call the Christmas not Christmas song, mm. which is a bunch of songs that I have that have made their way into the American holiday. Uh, music canon that where Christmas is actually never mentioned at all. <laughs> uh, they're all songs that are uh, what you might call them either. You might call them winter solstice or winter carnival, that type of thing. But I keep a little list of these songs. Uh, winter Wonderland, Marshmallow World, Baby It's Cold Outside, Jingle Bells, uh, I've got my love to keep me warm. Let it snow. Let it snow. Let it snow. Sleigh ride. Uh, Frosty the snowman. Hear this song, snowfall. All of these songs are about um, enjoying life in winter time. None of them ever mention Christmas. Interesting. Um, the other thing that I'll say about this song in particular, and this arrangement in particular, with uh, the lyrics that were chosen for Doris Day to sing. Again, there's not a story here, mm-hmm. but the lyrics themselves are not even really complete ideas. Yeah, she's just sort of she's sort of saying snowfall and snowflakes and frozen lace mm-hmm. and twirling tumbling. Uh, but in terms of actual like lyrical poetry, we have sort of the poem being created by the. The, as I said, by the the arrangement of the the instruments in this song, and as far as the actual words are concerned, um, twenty six words in the entire song. Yeah, the words are. I mean, the words came later. So, as noted, the Thornhill version didn't have words. I think did he, did, did his wife write the words at some I point? I think his 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 wife wrote the words. But okay. again, the you words are used very sparingly yeah. in in creating the atmosphere and story of this song. Well, you, you suggesting this sent me way, I mean, I probably listened mm-hmm. to 15 or 20 different versions of this with, mm-hmm. with vocalists, without vocalists. And where I come out is there are incredible vocal versions by people like Doris Day, um, who is, I mentioned to you, she's, she's a singer who's behind the beat just a bit. Like if you're yeah. familiar with what people always comment about Ringo Starr's drumming in the Beatles. He's just slightly behind the beat. Maybe Charlie Watts and the Rolling Stones is another example. It lends a certain something. It's, it's, a, it's a certain feeling that an instrument can have. And her voice has that. She's so behind the beat in a way that that contributes this languid sense that her vocal has. What I kind of learned. Tony uh, Bennett. Tony Bennett. All these great singers. And for me, though, I really got into the instrumentals because I think that the original uh, orchestration by Claude Thornhill lends itself more to these jazz versions and these orchestral versions because what he's doing in his use of which instruments are coming in and at, at what sort of tempo or what volume on top of each other is so fascinating. What happens to me in some of the sung versions is, of course, the voice becomes the thing that you're cueing into. And in the hands of a Doris Day, that is fascinating to listen to because as a piece of artistic singing, it's incredible. As, as a fan of the song, someone who became a fan of the song from you kind of reintroducing it to me here, 
I think in the jazz versions, you really get some of the genius of the composition because instrumentation is forward, if that makes sense. Well, I wouldn't disagree with you that you can get a lot of, out of the, the jazz and band versions of this because I like those too. But I think the instrumentation is almost like a duet with, um, with Doris Day in this version. It is a bit, but it has to make room for her, I guess is my point. So in making room for her, it has to leave aside some of the things you can listen to in Thornhill's original. Um, listen, people should listen to both. And again, this, this comes as like a fan of film score, fan of orchestration, like big Rafe Vaughn Williams fan who's noted for using mm -hmm. different combinations of orchestras mm -hmm. separated from each other. There's a little bit of that going on in the Thornhill recording, I think. There's interesting use of... Of, of the way the instruments are, are deployed in a way that once you have someone like a Doris Day or a Tony Bennett, you have to, they're front and center. It's, a, it's them first, and the composition is backing them up in a way. I think I prefer these versions where the genius of the composition is the thing I'm experiencing first. To me, sure. that, that's the instrument, instrumental version. But like very few other songs, Christmas songs particularly, there is a really interesting wormhole to go down for people to listen to. And just it's such a weird composition in a great way uh, that stood the test of time. So great choice by you. Yeah, well, I really like this song. And like I said, I think it's a little bit of an uh, of an underrated holiday time classic. I agree. Uh, whichever version you prefer, whichever version you prefer. OK, my choice and the thing that we will wrap on is to bring it back to my favorite era. The Waitresses, Christmas Wrapping. This is from 1981. One of the funkiest bass lines. just such a brilliant piece of songwriting of its time and uh has a funny funny story about how it came about uh the waitresses were a new wave band uh, from akron ohio and most people probably know them from this song or their other big hit i know what boys like and patty donahue is the female vocalist who's very distinctive kind of louche <laughs> personality and almost deadpan <laughs> delivery is what lends this group's songs uh, such a unique and weird kind of twist and turn to me. Um, and what's funny about the song is, uh, and I'll play you a little bit of um, Chris Butler, who's the sort of founder and sort of lead musical creative entity behind The Waitresses. Um, 
it was just something that the record label asked for a, a, a compilation from really like a downtown New York kind of cool alternative rock label called Z Records, which had bands like Suicide and Was and Christina and all these other kind of interestingly weird uh, new wave acts were compiled on this this Christmas record because I guess the guy at the head of the studio thought it would be a cool idea to have a uh, Christmas yeah. album. The producer called it a, a collection of New York junkies and Euro trash. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, um, you know, to me, this song, this sound evokes, you know, that that era of New York, because even though they're sort of originally from Ohio, that's that's sort of I associate them as a New York uh, new wave band. And that sound to me just plugs me into that 78 to 81 kind of time frame that I love so much. You know, it's a it's a song where the instruments are all played. The horn section is real. The, the track is is phenomenal. It's got groove. And, you know, Patty Donahue is just the icing on the cake. So uh, big fan of Christmas rapping. Whenever I hear this in the holiday season, it just makes me happy, makes me smile and um, you noted something I didn't really notice, which is the story of the song itself. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, you suggested you suggested that uh, you wanted to talk about this song. Uh, I had I probably heard the song a thousand times, but I never listened to it mm-hmm. uh, until we started thinking about uh, the, the content for this podcast, because there actually is. A, there actually is a a holiday story going on uh, here with the female singer talking about how uh, at the beginning of last year that she had ran into this guy that she liked and there are there are all these sort of near misses mm-hmm. of them throughout the year of them being able to get together and then we get up to Christmas time and she the character of the song has determined that she just prefers to spend Christmas alone mm-hmm. and that she's perfectly content for, with uh, Christmas being a drag and cooking a mm-hmm. meal for herself or whatever. She goes out to the um, the all-night A&P grocery and she runs into the guy that she was never able to get together with uh, throughout, the, throughout the year. He's also alone. They're both buying cranberries mm-hmm. at the all-night <laughs> uh, at the all-night market and in the end it's a love story. Yes. Um, she says at one point uh, early in the song, she said, she says, the perfect gift for me would be completions and connections. Yes. And at the end of the song, she says, suddenly we laughed and laughed, caught on to what was happening. That Christmas magics brought this tale to a very happy ending. Great. So it's not complicated. Uh, it's it's a Christmas miracle. Literature. Right? But we have, you know, we've got sort of the the we've got a great rock a new wave rock tune going on, mm-hmm. but there's also a magical Christmas story happening. Yeah. And I think the instrumentation is so great. I love the bridge. I love the horn breaks. It, 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 it manages to be kind of wistful and then celebratory all in one. Uh, and Patty Donahue's delivery is just fantastic. You, you, you mentioned there was a weird sound at 45 seconds. I, what, what, what was that you were referring to in the, in the track? Well, you just played it. So I don't know if you want to go back to, okay. it's just, I'm going to start it. I'm going to start just, it just before uh, uh, she comes in. Okay. Wait, hold so on. the first verse. Just before she comes in the first verse? Yeah. Okay. Before that? Okay, so it's a little earlier than 45 seconds. Yeah. All right, so before she starts singing. 
Yes. Okay. Let me take you back here. Here it comes. Is it that sort that? of reverse glockenspiel? I don't know what it is. I don't know <laughs> if it's supposed to be like a, uh, is it like a, a sleigh going by? Is it hmm. Let's listen. Let's listen again. Yeah, I think it's sleigh bells. It's processed sleigh bells. Huh. But why? Because it's Christmas. <laughs> what do you mean, why? Well, I'm just saying that so, that sound isn't used anywhere else in this whole song. Well, I think it's just it's just intro. It's bringing you the story. It's it's the Christmas vehicle through which the tale you are about to hear unfolds. So it introduces the Christmasness of what is about to befall you, um, because you don't really have that except in the very very beginning, right? I think the very very beginning. No, there's really. Now, there's really no there's no Christmas hint here, right? Well, so, now I'm not sure what version you're using here because we're uh, you're missing the uh, this the uh, the yeah, you're talking uh, about this the version. Glockenspiel beginning. This version. This. That's the long version. I was playing the yeah, radio. Yeah, just play the first few seconds. You hear that? You know what that is? That's Christmas. Yeah, but what else is it? It's Jingle Bells. Ding, 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 yeah. ding. So you're taking the first yeah. three notes of Jingle Bells, but on the third note, they're just going yeah. down an interval. So instead of Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, it goes Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells. Hmm. And then when the guitar comes in, they play with the melody of Jingle Bells a little bit. Mm -hmm. And instead of one horse open sleigh, he goes, it goes, it goes one horse open sleigh. <laughs> That's it. Musicology with Rick Brown, everyone. Well, this whole song, frankly, is, is if if you if you if you played this song mm -hmm. and then you played Jingle Bells and you put them both in, you listen to them both in F, uh, the all the <laughs> notes of this song are basically in the same scale as Jingle Bells. And though and those little riffs keep taking that one horse open sleigh part of the song and keep turning the melody around, mm -hmm. changing the notes slightly. It goes on through the whole song. Yeah. Which to me is part of the reason why I think this is this this oral experience, oral experience is, is attractive to people is because you're listening to the most famous pieces of the mm. most Chris famous Christmas song ever. Yeah. And then it has, you know, Patty Donahue's just great delivery on top of that. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like a, it reminds me a little bit of a Pina Colada song, which is another story song where people meant to be together meet <laughs> at the end like they mm -hmm. were always intended to after missing each other yeah um yeah it's just this always just evokes a great christmas spirit to me um and it's just this is the most representative christmas song for me because it just speaks to that era that i'm sort of com continually obsessed with so those are um our selections for a weird Christmas. If you queue up all of these things, I'm not gonna say you're gonna have a weird Christmas yourself, but you'll have an interesting one, an artistic one. You will be challenged, and uh, some of your presumptions may be dashed against the rocks of Christmas miracles, as Rick Absolutely. so eloquently put it. So, Rick, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, in, in just in regards to these songs, that this, that uh, our, our sort of, our secret, our our, the choices that we made here are really quite different from each other but 
they're they're different sort of Christmas examples of Christmas musical poetry. They're really mm-hmm. they, we couldn't have picked things that were further apart from each other, but they sort of they come together well. Well, Rick. I couldn't agree more. I thank you so much as ever for joining me. Thank you for continuing to be a part of the podcast and doing all of the great work that you did here. Appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you. Talk to you again soon.